0: Welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York, on the unceded homelands of the Mohican people, known today as the Stockbridge Muncie community. I'm Marshall Hildreth.
1: And I'm Bria Barthel. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, Blaze Bryant brings us the second part of his analysis of how Governor Hochul's budget proposals will affect people with disabilities, especially those needing long-term care. Then we hear from Mark Dunley on the various groups lobbying at the New York State Capitol on Tuesday to advocate for causes including youth justice, medical aid and dying, home ownership protection, and social cost housing. After that, Willie Terry talks with organizers from Troy for Black Lives about their February 2nd vigil, asking the Troy community to support the call for a ceasefire in Gaza and to stop the genocide killing of Palestinians by the Israeli army and the American government. Then we hear from Christiane Gibault, Troy Public Library's new head of Adult and Reference Services, about a whole slew of cool activities coming up at the library in February and early March. What's this about Gnome Valentines? And then finally, Melissa Gromley chats with local journalist and storyteller Mike DiSocio, about his latest article in The Guardian, documenting upstate New York's emergence as a haven for trans people and their families, about his upcoming book, and more. But first, here are a few headlines. A packet of
0: bills introduced in the New York State Assembly are aimed at improving access to dental care throughout the state, especially for low-income and other underserved populations. Assemblywoman Carrie Warner of Round Lake says the bill offers a multi-pronged approach to addressing, quote, accessibility in Medicaid funding, which disproportionately impacts individuals with disabilities, end quote.
1: In Albany, the cost for replacing the Livingston Avenue Bridge taking Amtrak trains across the Hudson, he has expended, in Albany, the cost for replacing the Livingston Avenue Bridge taking Amtrak trains across the Hudson has expanded from the $400 million originally estimated in 2022 to new estimates of $550 million for the bridge reconstruction and up to $600 million total for the full project with additional features. No date has been set for the start of construction, much less its completion. The Times Union notes that, quote, as far back as 2010, The Department of Transportation said recent inspections indicate that the bridge structure is approaching the end of its serviceable life. Not something you want to hear if you ride Amtrak.
0: (laughs) Rensselaer County officials recently met to receive about 200 new voting machines. The Troy Record reports that, quote, every voting site in Rensselaer County will have at least two clear ballot voting machines in operation. One will be specially designed unit that is ADA compliant, making voting easier and more accessible. The ADA compliant machines have features such as headphones, large screens, and a lower platform. The $1.5 million purchase of the clear ballot machines was described as a, quote, investment in Rensselaer County voters, unquote.
1: The Troy Record reports that this year's Partnering for Peace in Israel and Palestine event at Skidmore College will feature members of a group called Combatants for Peace, former militants who have become peace activists calling for a ceasefire and collective liberation. The event will be February 13th at Skidmore, and we'll hear more about the issues of Israel and Palestine in a a segment later in this broadcast.
0: The State Office of Renewable Energy sitting in the latest twist in a seven-year-old struggle has rejected the Shepherds Run Solar Project application in Copic, New York. The developers, who have won previous permits in court cases, will however be allowed to resubmit the project. The rejection was triggered by the recent purchase of part of the project site by a group of local farmers, creating a need for the project to be redesigned.
1: And that's it for the headlines.
0: For those of you just tuning in, you're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, listener-supported radio that builds community in Troy and the surrounding Capital Region through broad grassroots participation.
1: Our content is produced by volunteers. To learn how you can contribute your time, talents, or financial support, click on the Donate button at mediasanctuary.org, email us at hmm at mediasanctuary.org, Or call us, 518-272-2390.
0: Now to our first story. In an earlier episode, Blaze Bryant brought us a look at how the state's budget proposals might affect people with disabilities. We now hear part two of his conversation with disability advocates about the budget impacts, especially for those with long-term disabilities.
2: Earlier this week, you heard part one of my conversation with Alex Thompson with the New York Association on Independent Living and Julia Batista with Consumer Directed Action of New York. I started off part two by asking them about other budget priority issues. Julia, I'm going to tee this up for you now. What other issues are on your priority agenda?
3: Well, uh, I think the other biggest priority for us right now is the impending um personal care cuts that also include CDPA. I think CDPA actually would encompass most of these cuts. Um there in was in the twenty twenty-one state fiscal year budget. Now, just to again provide context, that was passed in twenty twenty when COVID was like reaching its peak in the state that would reduce um, eligibility for CDPA and other personal care services to individuals who require physical assistance with three or more activities of daily living. Um, That would only be two if you also have a diagnosis of Alzheimer's or dementia. Now keep in mind activities of daily living include getting in and out of bed or transferring, um, toileting, grooming, bathing, food preparation, medication dispensing, it's, um, the list goes on and on. And to think that someone could live at home needing even one or two of these, um, assistance with these tasks and not get it and be okay, just really doesn't make any sense. Um, no such eligibility cut exists for institutional care. So I think this again speaks to what I had just been saying about our bias in the state. Um, Anything, again, any savings that are anticipated are one, not an adequate reason to do this. Um, this is people's freedom and safety on the line. And two, um, really, it's going to result in people becoming more disabled through preventable injuries. Um, now, fortunately, these cuts were put on hold in exchange for COVID um, matching funds. Oh, sorry, COVID era. Um, additional federal matching funds for Medicaid. Um, In order to accept these dollars, we had to agree not to reduce eligibility on long-term care programming. Um, However, that is set to expire on March 31st, 2024. We don't anticipate that these cuts will take effect necessarily that quickly. There's some other things that uh, regulatorily have to happen first, but um, we are trying to ensure that that law is eliminated or, sorry, um, struck from state law so that they can't take place at all.
2: Right, and there is legislation in New York to counteract that, and it is pretty interesting, and it's not too far in the past. Governor Cuomo was hell-bent on getting these cuts rammed through, which just makes no sense. Now, Alex, I know... Of course, through the independent living sphere, the issues are a bit more diverse. So, give us the high level on those.
4: Right. Um, so, similar to what Julie Julia talked about, um, the ADL issue is uh, top of mind right now because we have heard um, fairly recently that they would like to implement that uh, April first of this year. So, we're uh, we're on a tight deadline to uh, reverse those changes. Um, so, so that's definitely something that is uh, top of mind. Um, one of the other things we didn't talk about, but I know this is something um, that's, uh, that Julia's organization also supports, is uh, removing um, managed long-term care companies um, from the um, um, long-term care system. Um, that's something where you know, we'd like to you know, realize some savings, significant savings, and have them reinvested in the system. Um, that's you know, another top health priority um, for our members and also um, coalition partners, including the caring majority who you know, a lot of people might be familiar with or fair pay for home care. You know, a lot of these savings can be reinvested and you know, support the workforce. Um, we also have several um, other priorities, um, including uh, home accessibility through supporting uh, funding for access to home Um, And also looking at transportation, um, expanding uh, paratransit service beyond, um, you know, the ADA minimums, which is, um, you know, something that's very limiting to a lot of people um, across the state being able to get accessible uh, and affordable transportation.
2: Right. Now, final thing, in the interest of some semblance of speculatory certainty, how do you feel optimistically speaking about your overall priorities and those being implemented for this coming budget. That is supposed to be due April 1st, but as we have seen in the past, you never know. April 1st could just be a joke in terms of the deadline.
3: I don't want to be too much of a pessimist. Um, but sometimes it takes a few years for um, these more ambitious initiatives to, you know, really take hold and possibly get passed. So some of our proposals are, again, new and bold. And I, I didn't actually get a chance to speak about all of them per se. But um, you know, I leave that surprise for Lobby Day, I suppose. <laughs> um, that said, I think that the most pressing. Time-wise is the MLTC, or sorry, the um, personal care eligibility changes. And I'm hopeful that the legislature is receptive to the importance of this, especially it's an election year. So it would be interesting to see how they respond to their own constituents who are going to be at risk of um, losing services imminently.
2: Yeah, for sure. Alex, how are you feeling about things?
4: Um, well, I think, you know, at this point of the year, you know, the barometer that we kind of measure against uh, tends to be the governor's budget. Um, you know, there are there are some good things that we did see that I haven't spoken about already. Um, you know, we're, you know, encouraged by the expansion of the Office of the Chief Disability Officer, which is you know, an office we fought for uh, for many years. Um, you know, there's support for the Olmstead plan, Um, There's some good things about um, expanding uh, Employment First initiatives, um, Interagency Coordinating Council for the Deaf, Deaf, Blind, Hard of Hearing. So there's some resources being put into that office, which is encouraging. Um, Like I said, I think some of the the health budget priority items um, are going to be the real challenge for us. Um, but I agree with Julia that, you know, it, 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 this directly affects people across the state, especially the eligibility issue. Um, there's a large constituency of people that are going to be impacted by this. So I, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic that, uh, their voices will be heard and hopefully we can get some positive action on that.
2: Absolutely. Well, I've taken up enough of your time, unless there's anything either of you, uh, want to add, but I'm going to spell out the websites where you can find out more. So for Consumer Directed Action of New York, I believe it is CDANY.org. Again, that's CDANY.org for Consumer Directed Action of New York. For the New York Association on Independent Living, for full disclosure, my employer, ILNY o r g again that's i l n y dot o r g for the new york association on independent living alex thompson and julia batista this has been a lot of fun we will be causing good trouble in the well of the legislative office building for budget advocacy day on monday february 12th and i have no doubt that We'll be talking a time or sixteen before then as well. So thank you both so much.
3: Thank you very thank you, much, Blaze, for having us.
2: This is Blaze Bryant reporting for Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
1: You can find the first part of this report on our website, www.mediasanctuary.org. Thanks to Blaze for his continuing coverage of disability related issues for our program.
0: Speaking of the New York State budget, Mark Dunley brings us this discussion with four groups recently lobbying at the Capitol for a variety of issues.
5: As usual, Tuesday, February 5th was a big lobby day at the State Capitol, with community activists flooding the corridors and the many land ins of the Million Dollar Staircase. We hear from four of the campaigns, starting with Aleah Guillory Nickens, a campaign organizer for youth represent, about the Youth Justice and Opportunities Act. Then Barbara Thomas of Saratoga and the League of Women Voters gives us an update on the push for the medical aid in dying law and how it impacted her family. Jim Duquette of the Empire Justice Center follows up with an overview of the Home Ownership Protection Program. And we finish up with Pizza Secor of New York Communities for Change talking about the Campaign for Social Quest housing.
6: My name is Aaliyah Guillory Nickens. I'm the campaign organizer at Youth Represent, which is a nonprofit legal organization that provides free legal services to young people up to age of 25. And we also focus on youth justice issues and policy that affects the youth in court. So we're here today fighting to get the Youth Justice and Opportunities Act passed, which is a bill that would expand alternatives to incarceration and record ceiling for youth. Because we believe that youth deserve opportunities to thrive in their communities. And there's science that shows that youth brain doesn't fully develop until the age of 25. And we want these laws to provide that science. We want these laws to show that science. So we're here fighting to get this bill passed. And we're here with over 100 young people and advocates that are fighting for the same thing.
5: Now, is this the first year the bill's been up? And you know, why hasn't it passed previously? And is there any opposition to it?
6: So this is actually, we introduced the bill just last year. It's fairly new. So we haven't had any opposition towards it now. We used to come to Albany to pass Raise the Age, which is now passed, and we've been getting pushback on Raise the Age, which is why it's pretty slow to get this bill passed. But we're here to fight and make sure that this bill does get passed and also to protect Raise the Age. We believe that the pushback we've been getting about Raise the Age is that young people are the reason why the communities aren't safe, and that's why gun violence is rising. But we know that young people aren't the reason, and scapegoating them isn't the answer. Young people need opportunities. They need love. They need hope. And that's why we're here to fight for the youth justice and opportunity act because that's what's going to make our city safer not scapegoating young people
5: now the governor has been sort of uh, backing away from criminal justice reform has she said anything yet about this particular proposal
6: no she hasn't we haven't heard from her
5: if people want to get more information about this act or get involved how best can they do that
6: on instagram youth represent nyc we have a website also act for ny.org
5: Thank you very much.
7: Hey. Um, I'm Barb Thomas from Saratoga uh, County, and I'm here today f- for medical aid in dying. Um, I'm s- here also representing the League of Women Voters, as well as myself, because the League has a position in favor of medical aid in dying. And what medical aid in dying is, um, the bill that we're supporting would um, allow a terminally ill patient within what a doctor would determine is six months of death um, to ask the doctor for a prescription that would allow them to end their life. And that is such a humane, loving thing to be able to do, and um, for the person who w- is dying, to choose a time when they can have their family around them to s- say goodbye and really just have um, like a, a peaceful ending death rather than being, say, writhing in pain or Losing all function and just laying around, that's something that my husband did. He had terminal brain cancer. He was not able to use that because there was no way that somebody who is already terribly incapacitated can leave this state and go someplace else.
5: Now, this bill's been around for a number of years. What gives you hope that this is the year they finally agree to it?
7: Well, I think we have more and more sponsors all the time. And certainly the general public, whenever we do a poll, between 60 and 70 percent of the people in the state want to have medical aid in dying. So um, it's very popular with the general public. So, I, And I think that legislators, you know, care what their public thinks.
5: Thank you very much.
8: Jim Duquette. I'm uh, program lead of the anchor partner program at Justice Center. And we're here today uh, lobbying for funding the HOP program, Homeowner homeowner Protection Program. I
5: understand it did not get in the governor's budget this year.
8: Yeah, well, the governor didn't put us in the budget. She took credit a little bit for the program and the wins of the program. But we didn't make the executive budget. So we're here to make sure that we're in the assembly budget as well as the Senate budget or the one house budget.
5: And what does the program actually do?
8: The program is 89 housing counseling and legal services uh, agencies around the state that provide foreclosure prevention services in every aspect of that
5: and i assume that's a big issue throughout the state
8: yeah of course you, you talk about the housing crisis exists all across the state and you can't talk about the housing crisis without talking about protecting homeownership and preserving the homeowners that are already in their homes
5: now the governor's made a big deal the last two years that um you know affordable housing is a big issue so why isn't she uh, putting this front and center in the budget
8: yeah, I don't presume to speak for the governor but we t- totally agree that affordable housing is a critical issue especially for those that are already in homes we want to preserve those homes
5: and if we have listeners out there say hey I could use those services how best can they contact
8: uh, you would you put me in spot with the phone number but there is a, ho- a homeowner hotline which I don't have at the top of my head mm-hmm. but you can it's on the internet homeowner hotline
5: and you know you have any reports as to the effectiveness of your program so far?
8: Yeah, all the data over the, the. Hop's been around for a little over ten years, and we have a over sixty percent positive outcome for the clients. And sometimes preserving the home is not the best case necessarily for the client, but working with an advocate navigating these incredibly complex systems is always an assistance.
5: Any other key issues that you're working on this session?
8: This is my main issue right now at Hop and the Homeowner Protection Program and getting it fully funded. If we don't end up, if we don't make it at fully funded at forty million dollars in the. In the um, in the final budget, then services will end on July 15th, and then we are the only dedicated funding just for closure and prevention in New York State.
5: And I assume Empire Justice Center has a website?
8: EmpireJusticeCenter.org.
5: Thank you very much.
9: Um, hi, it's Pete Sikora with New York Communities for Change, and we were in Albany to uh, push for social housing across the state, which would create union built housing that's affordable for every New Yorker uh, across the state to help deal with. Uh, the basic problem of affordability in our state, which is that the rent is too damn high. We want to pass the Social Housing Development Authority. And that's what we were in Albany for yesterday rallying.
5: Well, you say, you know, social housing. Um, maybe you can explain a little bit more of what that means. And, you know, Governor Cuomo and the legislature last year said, hey, affordable housing is our big issue. Didn't come up with an agreement. How is the governor relating to what you guys are proposing?
9: You know, the, the politicians really like to talk about these issues, affordability, but they're captured by corporate interests. So, you know, Governor Hochul um, has been unwilling to actually spend money on and regulate uh, housing. Um, she defers to the real estate interests uh, for most of her agenda. Um, so that means that um, every year the problem gets worse um so we're in albany to say that the state ought to spend money create its own organization and then create the kind of tenant controlled and public housing that's affordable for everyone um that's been done before in new york uh, decades ago the state did that repeatedly and successfully um and we've gotten away from that um as uh, corporations and the right wing have sort of taken over how um government um doesn't operate and becomes dysfunctional. So um, we really need to raise up a different standard. And that's what uh, a huge spending program to actually deliver the results that New Yorkers need of affordable housing.
5: Now, is there a, you know, ballpark figure as the amount of, you know, funding you want to receive? And, you know, how does sort of the the private real estate developers who have a different agenda, which is how they respond to this?
9: Um, private developers are doing very, very well by getting large tax subsidies from the state um, for development uh, and over the last few decades they have used um, that to fatten their profits while producing a very small amount of actually affordable housing. Uh, we want to change that dynamic and redirect the kind of money that the state spends on subsidy programs and more into actually affordable housing. So of course private developers hate that idea. they want to pocket subsidies and, Increase their profits. Um, And what they really don't want is regulation uh, of their rents and and conditions in their buildings. So they fight all of that and they have a ton of lobbyists and a ton of money. So it's very hard to win. Um, But what we need to do is raise our voices and uh, present an alternative vision and overpower their opposition
5: so how much money are you talking about where is the legislature on it and if people want more information how can they get it all in
9: 30 well seconds. they should they should read the new york times a story um uh, that was yesterday about this legislation um it would cost billions of dollars per year to build hundreds of thousands of uh units of affordable housing which would meaningfully affect the state's housing crisis so that that's what we need
5: and is there a website for more information New York Communities for Change, website?
9: Uh, nycommunities.org. Um, and the coalition to uh, visit is Housing Justice for All.
5: This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Magazine.
1: Thanks to Mark for that report. The folks who talked with him are from the groups Youth Represent, the League of Women Voters, the Empire Justice Center, and New York Communities for Change. For those just tuning in, I'm Bria Barthel.
0: And I'm Marshall Hildreth. You're listening to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network on WOOCLP 105.3 FM Troy, WOOGLP 92.7 FM Troy, WOOSLP 98.9 FM Schenectady, WOOALP 106.9 FM Albany, and always streaming online at Media Sanctuary backslash HMM. This program comes from the Sanctuary for Independent Media, located right here in Troy, New York.
1: If you like what you hear, you can support this program by sharing our content, or even by joining us in creating content. Find today's stories and more at mediasanctuary.org.
0: On Friday, February 2nd, our roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, attended a Gaza ceasefire vigil sponsored by Troy for Black Lives, and here is his report.
10: For. no more C's 5 will be fighting for no more C's 5 no no more. More. Will, no will be fighting for no more C's 5 will be
11: fighting for no more C's no 5 will be fighting for, no 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 for. alright, Tuesday at 6pm Leo, by Federal Building 1, One. Clinton Square, Four o'clock. 4 o'clock. So Tuesday, February 6th at 4 p.m. at the O'Brien Federal Building, 1 Clinton Square. Please bring your pots and pans, um, and please bring your bodies and endorsements and
10: statements. We're going to have a rally. Yeah, this is Willie Terry, Roman Labor Correspondent, outside of the uh, Troy Plaza, where there's a rally going on in support of Palestine. And I have, uh, as my guest, uh, one of the uh, organizers here. His name is.
11: My name is Iano Karabi. How you doing, Iano? I'm doing well.
10: All right. So, Iano, tell me uh, something about what's going on.
11: Huh? Can you repeat that question?
10: Oh, tell me what's, something about what's going on here today.
11: So right now, Troy for Black Lives is organizing uh, an amazing event. A lot of folks were doing an amazing event. Um, and um, we're, uh, we're out here weekly, monthly, yearly. For the past 10 to 15 years, we've been doing a lot of organizing for Palestine. Um, I'm grateful eternally grateful That You know Troys for Black Lives And uh, Jewish Voice for Peace Has been helping out um, You know Particularly Zahair and I Zahair and I Have been to everyone And we've been organizing A lot of them So We would love for more people To show up to stuff Particularly Monday And Tuesday Monday Albany Monday Albany High School Are staging a walkout And Tuesday in front of the Leo, uh, Leo, uh, Leo O'Brien Federal Building. We're having a rally, march, potential speak out um, across from the, the Palace Theater to talk about UNRWA and ceasefire.
10: Oh, okay. And, and I have somebody here because Black Lives Matter. For, for and, Church
7: for Black Lives.
10: For Lion. Alfonso, I'm to to okay. Troy for Black Lives. Alfonso, yeah. to get
12: the Alfonso. Okay. why Black You can do it. Uh,
10: okay, I'm getting somebody from Troy for Black yeah, Lives. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, okay, what was Yeah, it? and I have as my guest. Your name? Alfonso Rodriguez. Okay, and you have a Troy for Black Lives?
13: Yes, yes, I am. A member mm-hmm. of Troy for Black Lives. So. Oh,
10: so tell me, uh, why should uh, black people, or why should people in general, be supporting this struggle that's
13: going on? In well, I think it's important to remember that these folks in Palestine have been under siege, under attack, under occupation for 75 years now. And that these recent spat of like conflicts and things didn't start with October 7th. This is a regime of folks, Israel is a regime of folks who have been occupying and setting, setting up an apartheid state in Palestine. And that's something that black folks here in the states and all over the world really, have some kind of association with. There's a familiarity there with it because we also are a part of various, a myriad um, states, either apartheid states or you know racism here in the states or just other forms of state-sanctioned violence that happens. And when you start to peel back the layers of the onion, you see the connections between the settler colonial projects that exist in Israel today that tie back to the original, or one of the original settler colonial projects that is the United States.
10: Well, Israel uh, supported South Africa, the apartheid regime. So uh, I guess that's the reason why South Africa really uh, came out and took them to court.
13: For sure. I mean, Israel helped support the apartheid state, but there's the coalition, the organizers, roots-on-the-ground folks who've done the work and they've studied and now become those lawyers that you see in the ICJ case, right? So it's interesting to see how folks on the ground who have been affected in the past are now starting to become those revolutionaries and those people who are affecting the change and now and the here and the now and in the future.
10: Now, even if uh, you On October 7th, 170 people got killed uh, in Israel. That's what they say, and there's a lot of discussion going on and debate going on about that, (laughs) you know, because of the propaganda
13: that Israel has.
10: But there is no justification for killing 27,000 people and over 10,000 kids, right?
13: There is none. You hear so many quotes about, oh, we have the right to defend ourselves. We have the right to um, respond. But when you look at just like the proportionate, the the proportion of the response, I mean, you don't want, like every life is sacred, right? But the wanton destruction of cultural sites, buildings, homes, of hospitals, for Christ's sakes, of children, 10,000 plus children killed in Palestine. The overwhelming number of folks who have been killed, um, men, women, and, uh, and children. So it's just like, is this a Hamas thing or is this something that is bigger? And you start to just, like, you don't even have to ask that question and expect a response because so many officials on the Israel side have shared how they feel about it. You look at the words of the mayor of, I forget the one town of that, where that mayor is in Israel, but she's, like, openly said, oh, yes, the plan is to starve them so that they leave eventually. Other countries, neighboring countries will eventually accept them. So, and that's just the one mayor. There's rhetoric that comes from the prime minister. There's rhetoric that comes from the president of Israel. There's rhetoric that comes from all these like army generals, these people who are directly tied to the conflict, that have been saying, yes, this is a genocide. Point blank period. And so so many people just like discount that. It's like, oh, that's not what they're saying. But it is what they're saying. It's what we're seeing on social media, and it's time for it to end.
10: And, and you know that uh, the support for Palestine and the black community go back a long ways. You know, Kwame Ture, you know, theater, and, and even further than probably than that. And uh, I, I just wonder why do you think the national black leaders today are not coming out and, uh, you know, for try to stop that uh, genocide that's going on there. I mean, I haven't heard anything from the NAACP, the urban, the you know, national Organization is not saying that. It just going along with the program, it's talking about vote for black.
13: Yeah, that's, <laughs> it's heartbreaking, right? When you have folks in the church who, and Mark Lamont Hill has some really poignant to words to say either. about this about just how heartbreaking it is to hear people standing up to the the state-sanctioned violence, standing up to the head of the monster itself, if you will, Joe Biden, and saying, look, you can't claim to be like about wanting to save lives when there are children dying in Palestine right now. And if you cared so much about that, you would speak out against it. And to hear people overlap that message with four more years, four more years, you almost have to open up that statement, right? It's four more years of what? Let's chant for four more years of genocide. Four more years of funding for Israel's free health care, while so many people here in the states are starving and homeless. Right? So it's just like, okay, what are you actually advocating for when you hear those words? When you make those statements, what are you standing up for? Whose side are you on, essentially? All right. So would there be a
10: Black Lives Tour for Black Lives to do more? uh, Uh, Protests and demonstrations around this issue. I mean, I know you're here
13: today. Yes, yes, we will. Cold, but (laughs) a little bit cold to be out here. But you know, this is the cost that we have to pay in order to affect the change that we want to see. So, yes, Troy for Black Lives will be hosting um, a few events. We're still working out the details and organizing amongst all our folks. But if you want more information for that, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter as well. All Troy for Black Lives that's T R O Y, the number four. Black, B-L-A-C-K, lives, L-I-V-E-S. All right. Thank you, now. You got it. it. Right.
1: That was Willie Terry reporting from last Friday's vigil calling for a ceasefire in Gaza. For more information about the sponsoring organization, you can also visit their website, troy 4 That's Troy, the number four, BlackLives.com.
0: Yes, com. In our next segment, we hear about upcoming activities at the Troy Public Library from its new head of adult and reference services, Christiane Jebeau.
1: This is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine, and I'm at the Troy Public Library uh, talking with Christiane Jebeau, the new head of adult services and reference services for the library. And she's going to bring us an update on some of the great activities going on here. So, Christiane, welcome to Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Hi, thank you again for inviting me. Always good to see you. Uh, She's new to the job, and they didn't warn her that there were going to be monthly radio interviews. So let's see how she does. So you have some great activities coming up for February.
14: Let's hear about them. Sure. So uh, February, as we all know, is Black History Month. So one of the things we thought of doing is showing a series of different films that are uh, fictional in nature, but based on real people. Um, So the first one's going to be this coming Thursday, February 8th at 5.30 p.m. We will be screening Loving, which is about the uh, couple, Richard and Mildred Loving, who basically were arrested in 1958 for violating the state's miscegenation laws, which led to a landmark Supreme Court case. So you go through their whole process of meeting and then the case and everything. And miscegenation
1: is the terrible idea of blacks and whites getting together and marrying.
14: Absolutely, yes. So uh, anyway, so, you know, obviously we have a a legal issue, but then they have to go through a Supreme Court process. And so it's a wonderful film, very
1: touching, uh, very difficult, but very touching. Interesting twist on sort of the Valentine's Day uh, paraphernalia and, and documentaries and such that are out.
14: Absolutely. And the wonderful thing is their last name is Loving, right? I mean, just wonderful. So yes, absolutely. Uh, we will then uh, on Saturday on the 24th of February, we'll be um, highlighting Hidden Figures, which, uh, you know, very popular film that came out nominated for Academy Awards. Uh, and so it's about three female African American NASA employees who uh, helped conquer space to, to beat the Soviets uh, for the US. Um, but then they also have to conquer racism and sexism, you know, in the industry as well. So we'll be highlighting their stories on that Saturday.
1: Besides the idea of filling in stories that have been lost about African Americans being involved in technology and in, in space, I thought it was interesting in that film and in the book to learn that the word computer was originally used to refer to the women who did all of the calculations.
14: Yes. I had forgotten that part, but you're absolutely right. Just very interesting how terms change over time, what have you. And then obviously the ginormous computer that they bring in and then they have to completely change the size of the door to get it through and all that stuff. So yeah, wonderful history in multiple ways, but, um, you know, definitely highlighting, uh, women, African-American women in mathematics and science and, and that kind of thing, which we tend to not, um, present as much. And so this was just a wonderful opportunity to, to do that. And which day are you showing that again? We will be showing that on Saturday, um, February 24th at 1 p.m. Terrific. And next up? And then the last one that we're going to show will be on Thursday, February 29th at 5.30 p.m. We'll be highlighting uh, Spike Lee's Black Klansman, which was about a police detective who infiltrated the uh, Colorado chapter of the KKK with his Jewish colleague. So uh, interesting take on having, you know, different people of different cultures, but infiltrating a culture that was very white, very supremacist. So um, we'll be focusing on that film.
1: Terrific. So those are the three films. Loving, Hidden Figures, and The Black Klansman. Okay, and besides the films, what else do you have going on? So uh, upcoming next week on
14: Monday, uh, February 12th at 6 p.m., we'll be doing a Gnome Valentine with ChatGPT. For those of you who don't know what that is, it's an AI tool. And so uh, people will be building Valentines um, and... A Gnome G-N-O-M-E, Valentine? That's correct. So the Valentines will look like gnomes. <laughs> so anyway, gnomes are big in the last year or two. I, I don't know why, but they're just big. So in terms of the chat GPT, uh, it's, it's just a way to do a creative project, but also teach people how to use a new technology. So uh, people will be creating pro- poems or sayings or something that will go with the cards. So that's ultimately what the uh, craft is going to be, so
1: and then people will be able to print out the cards here
14: or yes they'll be making the cards and then uh with the um chat gpt they'll be able to print out what it is that they've created verbal you know the the text version so very cool anything else yes uh and so uh coming up um Uh, you know what? Did I write it down? I did. So on Thursday, February 22nd at 6pm, we'll be unlocking your psychic gifts with Nicola Lewis. Uh, So basically, it's to identify your gifts and channel them, you know, uh, you know, basically learning about the process. So she's a medium, she's a tarot card reader and all that other stuff. Uh, Hot tea will be provided, it will be very relaxing. And we think it'll just be a fun get together for those who are interested in this, or feel like maybe they might have some, some gift or other. and, And so, So basically learning
1: how to do that unlocking your psychic gifts so at least it's not unwrapping your psychic gifts that's very true i think i have zero psychic gifts so
14: there'll be no unwrapping for me (laughs) and you have at least one other thing coming up Yes, so so not quite connected to it, but uh, Thursday, March 7th at 5.30 p.m., we have the Unknown Paranormal Society coming. Uh, So basically, you know, you'll come, you'll learn, you'll listen listen and witness the evidence that they've captured over the years, have an opportunity to ask questions, and they'll tell phenomenal stories about whatever their experiences have been since they've been together. I want to say it's been since 2011, something like that.
1: So paranormal and psychic gifts? Were these things that you helped plan or were these in the works before you came? These were in
14: the works before I came on site. Uh, So we have a wonderful planning coordinator or director, I think, uh, programming director named Chloe Whitaker. And so she has some great ideas. She has things in process and we're going to be looking at the programs and seeing what we can do to uh, make sure that we do interactive and, you know, learning and experiential learning for people coming to experience programs, but then also to, um, you know, have just a bunch of learning opportunities in different ways. Uh, One of the things that we're thinking about doing is pulling together a film literacy series to talk about films and kind of how they're made by looking at maybe different genres or different types. So uh, we're planning for March to do uh, something on film noir and basically taking an older film, a quintessential film noir film, and then uh, maybe looking at a a neo-noir or modern noir and see how you do film noir in color, basically. So.
1: Very cool. Well, if you had unlocked your psychic gifts before coming, you would have known that these things were coming up. Uh, True, I would
14: have, yes. I would have been more prepared. (laughs) But after that workshop, you'll be ready for the future. Absolutely, absolutely. It'll be very fun. And the location for the Troy Public Library is? We are at 102nd Street, Troy, New York, 12180. And the telephone number? Telephone number is 518-274-7071. Okay,
1: this was a pop quiz, and you passed beautifully. And here's the tricky one, the website. Okay, the website is www.thetroylibrary.org. And as I always say, you have to have the word the there, or you get to Troy in a totally different state. So Christiane Gibault. Uh, Thank you so much for your information. I look forward to talking with you each month. I do as well. Thank you. And again, this is Bria Barthel for Hudson Mohawk Magazine. Gnomes, psychic gifts, and the unknown paranormal As as contrasted with the known paranormal? Libraries sure have changed since I was a kid. We'll be hearing from Christiane Gibot again in an episode later this week about her book suggestions for February, and I look forward to talking with her each month for regular chats.
0: Now we hear from Melissa Bromley, who spoke with local journalist and storyteller Mike Desocio about his latest article in The Guardian, which documents upstate New York's emergence as a haven for trans folks and their families. He also talks about his new upcoming book,
15: my name is Mike Desocio. I am a journalist based in Troy, New York. I freelance and write for a variety of national and local publications, and I mainly cover cities, climate change, and the LGBTQ community.
12: And how did you end up becoming a journalist?
15: I've wanted to be a journalist pretty much since high school and followed that path through college. That was my major. I worked in a few different kinds of newsrooms, a traditional print, public radio, And then when I graduated, ended up here in Albany for a job at the Albany Business Review, where I got to do a similar mix of things, but ultimately landed on reporting and writing. And that's really what I'm most passionate about.
12: Public radio. How cool. So have you produced audio segments as well?
15: So I kind of got into public radio through a side door. I was mostly doing digital editing, sort of social media, that sort of thing. I was at WBUR working on the show On Point. Never really got to produce much. They allowed me to help produce one show, uh, but my, my role was really more digitally focused.
12: Very cool. And so you recently had a piece published in The Guardian about upstate New York. Can you tell us a bit about that article?
15: Yeah, I wrote about the city of Rochester and how it's attracting a significant number of trans residents from all over the country who are fleeing states where their rights have essentially been uh, curtailed, their health care has been banned. So I found this really surprising. I initially heard about it offhand at a professional conference, and the idea that hundreds of people were moving to a city like Rochester for any reason really seemed newsworthy to me. Um, and in this sort of political climate of anti-trans legislation, I thought I wanted to learn more about what was really happening. And so what I found is that Rochester, but also cities across upstate New York, Albany, Buffalo, Syracuse, are attracting people because they are relatively affordable and they are places where queer rights are affirmed, where gender-affirming care is uh, available. So. They kind of fly under the radar, but they've become very popular on on the internet in threads where people are asking, where should I move? And they're attracting a lot of trans folks.
12: So what was the conference you were at where this became apparent to you?
15: So this was the conference for LGBTQ journalists. It's called NLGJA. And a panelist mentioned offhand that hundreds of folks were moving to Rochester. He was one of them who had recently moved to Alfred, New York, which is not quite Rochester, but in the same region of the state. And I expected a room full of journalists to jump on that story. But then a few months went by and no one had written it. So I decided I wanted to write it.
12: How does that work at the Hudson Book Magazine where a group of volunteer news producers? And I'm just curious, how does that work? You, you know that there's a story you want to write. Do you reach out and try to pitch that story to publications?
15: Yeah, so for this one, I did a significant amount of pre-reporting, which I don't always do as a freelancer because it's unpaid work. But I really wanted to make sure that number was correct, that it was a significant trend, that I could find sources. Um, and so I started, I started doing that. I reached out to community organizers. I kind of got that baseline of the story and a couple sources ready to go. Yeah, and then I pitched it. Um, it ended up at The Guardian, which I was really happy about. I've written a bit for their climate desk, but this was my first time writing a feature for them.
12: What stories have you written for their climate desk?
15: Actually, another story about upstate New York, this one was about Ithaca, which I wrote a couple of years ago, had advanced a really ambitious plan to decarbonize the entire city. Uh, they had get, gotten a really significant sum of money, I, I believe it was $100 million, to basically start going building by building and replacing heating systems and insulating and putting on solar. And it was a really ambitious plan, especially for a city of that size
12: very interesting. When you do write a story like that, are you kind of limited to the space that you can write to?
15: Yeah, my editor did give me a a suggested word count, so I tried my best to stay within it. It ended up a little bit longer, which I was happy about. I felt like there was a lot of story to tell here.
12: Was there anything that didn't make it into the article that you want people to know?
15: Honestly, I think I really got the main points in there. There were additional examples. So in the article I give three examples of folks who've recently moved. Uh, I had talked to more than that. We kind of picked the ones that made the most sense. Um, But I think really all of the trends and the factors that I want to talk about made it in there.
12: For those who haven't read the article, can you walk us through one of the sort of prototypical stories?
15: Yeah, so um, one was someone named Jennifer who recently moved from St. Louis, Missouri. She was really bummed to leave St. Louis. It was a place that she loved. She had good schools, good neighbors, the city itself was great, but the state of Missouri had for a couple of years been considering anti-trans legislation and she was raising a trans daughter and she said the mental toll was so intense even when nothing passes, but eventually something did pass, there are now several anti-trans laws in Missouri and so they asked themselves where can we go, where do we have chosen family? That can support us one place was Chicago one place was Rochester and they basically just said Rochester seems more affordable so let's move there uh that was over the summer they've settled in really nicely they've found it to be really accepting and affirming and have found good schools um housing remains a bit of a challenge they're just renting for now but I think overall they were really happy with their decision
12: very cool Um, I know you focused on Rochester in the story specifically, uh, but you mentioned that the trend is wider than that. Um, And and you also mentioned that upstate New York isn't necessarily always seen as sort of a liberal bastion. Can you talk a little bit to that?
15: Yeah, absolutely. And when I came to the story, I was kind of surprised, like, why Rochester? Um, And I know living in the Albany area that this is an accepting place. And what I found was that that's really true of all most of the upstate cities so um they are kind of these blue islands uh so to speak and a recent kind of lgbtq inclusivity rating gave perfect scores to albany syracuse and rochester buffalo got a 97 so not too far behind Um, So it's a little bit surprising. They do fly under the radar, but Rochester in particular has long been a really queer-affirming place. Their Pride Month lasts for two months. Uh, It's June and July. So I don't think it's surprising to anyone who lives in these places, but it is surprising sometimes to the outsiders.
12: I have to ask, did Troy make the
15: list? Troy was not on the list. I think it kind of gets lumped into Albany as far as the major metros go.
12: Fair enough. Is there anything that didn't make it into the story that you wish that you could let people know about?
15: Yeah, I think this story focused mainly on care for adults. Um, That seemed to be the more significant trend here. Um, A lot of adults are moving themselves for gender affirming care for their own safety. Um, But obviously there's a lot of families moving. That example I gave earlier of Jennifer moving for the sake of her daughter. Um, That's a really significant trend too. Um, Some folks are moving even before their kids need the care, um, just out of fear that their states are not gonna be welcoming places for their kids. So that's happening in Rochester too. Wasn't really quite in the scope of the story to tackle both, but it's definitely significant.
12: You mentioned that the healthcare facility that is treating Jennifer's child has begun to track folks moving to the state. Do you have any numbers from them yet?
15: Yeah, so the numbers that they gave me were for overall patient increases. So the number of trans patients at the clinic has risen from about 200 to 2,000 over the course of six years. Like I said, they started tracking the state movement only recently, so they didn't have those numbers. Uh, But the director of the trans program there said it's definitely increasing. He's seeing 16 new patients every week. So it's really kind of mind-blowing how big these numbers are.
12: You mentioned that you have several topics that you touch on, and this is essential in LGBTQ plus communities, and you're also working on a relevant book. Can you talk a little bit about that?
15: Yes, I'm writing a book about the Boy Scouts of America and their fight over LGBTQ membership. So the book is called Morally Straight. It's a play on the Scout Oath, uh, which implores Scouts to be morally straight, although that of course never met heterosexual. And so I'm telling the story of this essentially 40-year battle. It started as a legal battle for gay men to gain membership in the Boy Scouts. Uh, When that failed in the Supreme Court, it became a grassroots media campaign that eventually uh, yielded victories in the 2010s. And uh, the Boy Scouts is now a place that is open to kids of all genders and sexual orientations. So I am telling that sweeping story of the whole movement.
12: Were you a Boy Scout?
15: I was, I'm an Eagle Scout, I'm also queer, so this is a very personal story to me. I was in the program in the 2010s when all of this was really going down, so I never really faced discrimination in the program myself, but it was an extremely personal kind of conflict for me as it was all going on.
12: Mm. Where can people go to learn more about all of your work?
15: The best place is my website, MikeDeSocio.com, that's M-I-K-E-D-E-S-O-C-I-O. There's a page there for my book. You can pre-order it at this point. It'll come, it's coming out in June. And you can also find this story about Rochester along with a lot of my other recent stories.
12: You're a storyteller. That's what you do. And I know you from
1: the Front Parlor series. Uh... Thanks to Melissa Bromley for bringing us her interview with Mike Desocio and his reporting on trans support in cities throughout New York State and on uh, his book on the Boy Scouts welcoming LGBTQIA folks, finally. And that's our show.
0: We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Marshall Hildreth.
1: And I'm Bria Barthel. Thanks to Joan Eason for engineering this episode. And thanks to all of the other volunteers who made today's episode possible, including Mark Dunley for most headlines, the story segment, and his unflagging efforts to keep this program alive. And Blaze Bryant willie terry and melissa bromley for segment production this program is a team effort and we invite you to join our team this program covers stories of social and environmental justice produced by the community for the community and is supported by independent donations if you value independent media consider a gift of a monthly donation as a sanctuary sustainer by going to mediasanctuary.org
0: we want to hear from you. Find us on Instagram and Facebook at Hudson Mohawk Mag or send us an email to hmm at mediasanctuary.org. Tune in weekdays at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news or stream Sanctuary Radio at mediasanctuary.org. Full episodes and individual stories are always available on demand at our website and on your favorite podcast platform.
1: And thanks to you, our listeners, for making this all worthwhile.